Section 45, Incompatible Files, Slipping, Office 97, RTM. Sanofsky! Sanofsky! What do you mean you're changing the file formats? We can't do that! Steve Ballmer yelling across the Building 17 cafeteria at me. Office 96 was quickly becoming the biggest slip to an Office or Apps release in years, and that was extraordinarily disappointing. We reached our zero bug bounce milestone, called ZBB, because for a brief moment the product would bounce around a mythical zero bug count, in July 1996, and that was great. We were also behind our original schedule by months, and we knew there was no way to catch up. We needed more time. We felt like shit. I did not always go to lunch in Building 17's cafeteria, but happened to go down one summer day, and I was waiting to pay, holding my two slices of Marriott cheese pizza, when I heard, Sanofsky! Sanofsky! What do you mean we are changing the file formats? We can't do that! Steve Ballmer was yelling at me across the cafeteria, and all of a sudden, I felt like a few hundred people got quiet and were watching to see how I reacted. His voice seemed to come from everywhere, so it took me a moment to locate him. A ten-minute conversation followed that started in earnest as he made his way toward me about the reality that Office 97, as it had been officially named, had a whole new architecture with loads of new features for document creation like drawing and fancy word tables, animations in PowerPoint, and new charts with top-notch graphics in Excel, and so on. Word and Excel changed the file format to support all these. A changed file format meant that what meant what to a customer was foo.doc or foo.xls on disk was only compatible with the version of the app that created that file or a new version. Trying to open foo.doc created with Word 97 on a Word 6 setup would give an inscrutable error message. This message would often terrify the user into thinking that they had a corrupt file or the computer had eaten their work. All of this horrible experience was perfectly normal for state-of-the-art software. I kid you not. Well, it turned out the strategy of not changing the file formats in Office 95, at least for Word and Excel, was a huge hit with the field sales force. So much so that they thought it was our new strategy to maintain the same file formats forever. Why wouldn't they? When in fact, we thought of 95 as the exception and the only way to sync up with Windows 95. We had spent a ton of creative energy arriving at sellable features that did not require a file format change but were severely constrained in doing so. I never really thought about mentioning this because it was just so obvious, or so I thought. Steve thought we were totally screwed and had misled his sales team. The online version has a review from uh, August of 1995 with Windows 95, where Steve Manis happens to go on a rant in the New York Times about changing file formats for a competitive product from Lotus. The file format changed probably within the first few weeks of the project and was standard industry practice. The success of Office 95's unchanged file formats caused a bit of a crisis as we were working on Office 96. It was obviously both too late and impossible regardless to reverse course. Heike K coordinated what would be described as a crisis mitigation plan involving format converters for existing applications and save-as capability within the new versions to produce down-level files with the risk of losing new features. This was a reasonable solution, but required organizations to install software on every single PC, whether it was just a converter for existing computers or the whole new Office 97 on new PCs. In other words, what we thought was reasonable 
was a huge pain. Steve B. was right. The app's culture was tuned to avoiding crisis moments, usually by rewarding prevention and a low tolerance for avoidable drama. When a crisis did hit, self-inflicted or otherwise, the app's approach aimed for cool, calm, collected. Chris P. often described this like listening to the cockpit voice recordings of naval aviators landing jets in difficult circumstances. That calm was accompanied by an executive team that did not view a crisis as an opportunity to micromanage or upend existing processes. As a result, we thought through this with excruciating detail. All of the test managers and PMs from each team had developed a complete plan to support the new file formats in the old products and deliver product updates to existing products, even using the novel new approach of internet downloads. This did not solve the physics problem that we could not make the new features of Office 96 show up in Office 95 or Office 4.3, but we could ease the pain and prevent people from being unable to open files they received with the ever-growing use of email. One bit of good news was that the biggest motivator for changing the file format was to support the new worldwide standard for representing text in computers called Unicode. And Microsoft had contributed a huge amount to this. Up until then, PCs had a difficult time representing many of the world's languages, and mixing several languages at once was almost impossible. Unicode was a major step forward, and for multinational corporations, the ones complaining loudly to Steve Ballmer, easing the pain of multilingual documents was a huge win. A decade later, Unicode would become familiar to everyone as it supported emoji. This was a rare crisis for the team and a good learning experience to the degree that foisting incompatible files across a corporation could be called a learning experience. As an organization, this did bring us into the modern office-focused world in two ways. First, the crisis created a new muscle, which was driving change to core behavior across all the products at once. This had to happen. It was the first of what could be called a sweet first problem-solving and coordination. Second, this was such a pain for every team that it served to be an early dose of the enterprise business and what would be different for the team. The needs of enterprise customers became paramount as we moved to future releases, and the solutions to those needs were addressed across the entire team. The online version includes a checklist of challenges for upgrading as part of dealing with the file format issue that Heike Kinerva wrote. Still, this was my first of many, many lessons in the difference between consumer products and enterprise products, between selling at retail and selling through account managers. Because every product always changed file formats, this could have been viewed as routine. But the world had changed. Seemingly overnight, documents were being emailed around, and all of a sudden, it was too common to get files that could not be opened. In a sense, this was really a crisis for the office business, and one that could cause a sea change in how we viewed files. It also happened to be the strength of the internet and World Wide Web, one single format that can be read by any browser on any computer, and soon one language that could be used to write programs once and run everywhere. The online version includes a review from InfoWorld with the title, Office 97 Not Forward Compatible. It was a pretty significant negative review. Beyond that, it was a lesson in how Microsoft customers were changing. The technology enthusiasts who embraced changes and had high thresholds for pain that random changes caused were being replaced by system administrators and IT professionals who were not only change-averse, but often barriers to change. The file format incident was a warning sign for what was to come, 
not just for Microsoft, but for me personally, as I had to reconcile innovation with a customer base that was becoming less interested in technology changes, and which we thought of as cool, and more focused on the costs of those changes, which we thought of as simply necessary. The online version includes an excerpt from our layperson spec detailing all the features in Office 97, as we'll talk about. Strategy changes don't always come with a moment, but it was clearly this moment when it became clear we would move Office files to be open and to use the file format of the internet, HTML. This would prove to be enormously controversial with Bill G as the very origin of apps, specifically Word, was the invention of the Word.doc file format, which was a key and proprietary competitive advantage. It was also a technology Bill knew well. By the fall, Office 96 was approaching the finish line. The team was tired. We were nine months late off our original schedule. We felt it. Nine months late was kind of inexcusable, but relative to the rest of Microsoft and the industry, still well within norms. More than the feeling of exhaustion, we're feeling that much as we accomplished, we had also not executed as we had hoped. We were hard on ourselves for the slip. The routine post-mortem that would follow was filled with genuine discussions trying to figure out how not to repeat this slip, even if it was also the last release where we would talk about Office versus the apps. Even with the exhaustion, there was so much to be proud of. The product cycle was difficult, but we did not experience any sort of death march. Yes, many people put in long hours. While the many on the teams would do bug bashes one night a week, we were not catering food every night as was common in other parts of Microsoft. Babies were born, people were married. There was all the life experience that happens with a group of a thousand people over three years. Relative to the rest of the company, we ran the project with a sense of balance and normalcy. The core tenet of our process was that we arrived at the schedule and dates from bottom-up estimates, and when those estimates were wrong, the individuals worked extra or we scaled back features. Both of those are viewed as acceptable. We didn't seek out heroes, we were proud of that, and we would get better at estimates, accountability, and balance with each release going forward. The release to manufacturing, which came about six weeks before launch, was on a cold and rainy November 16, 1996. A few of us were at Comdex in Las Vegas doing press when Hakey led the team through the final shiproom meeting and sign-off. He was kind enough to call in, and I spoke from my flip phone, but might as well have been in outer space. The connection was horrible. Still, the sense of accomplishment was as real as the relief. From afar, I wished everyone well and knew there would be one heck of a party on campus, and there were pictures to prove it. Marketing was gearing up for a launch and did a fantastic job creating awareness and a retail presence, and for the first time, gearing up an ever-growing enterprise sales force. The industry had grown so much, creating a massive demand for press coverage, unlike anything we'd experienced. Every paper, in every town, in every country, seemed to have a tech section. The summaries of press coverage were growing ever longer, and the skills the office marketing team had to get the word out in a consistent and clear way were growing with that demand. The launch was subdued relative to Windows 95, and that was by design. Late 1996 was mostly about the enterprise and servers, so Office was focused on those elements of the product. While Office 95 was viewed as a significant release, the realities of a 200-page Office 97 reviewer's guide detailing all of the features of the product really sent the message that Microsoft was all in on suites and had unparalleled depth and breadth to offer. The plethora of features in the product and breadth of those tools kept the technology press busy and excited. 
The phrase shock and awe was routinely used to describe the overwhelming depth and breadth of the office suite. The reviews were extremely positive. Office 97 garnered nearly all the major awards across magazines, which at times were a big deal. Byte, PC World, PC Magazine, and much more each recognized the suite and individual applications as editor's choice or world-class. The online version includes some of those reviews, including the Byte five-star review from December 1996. Clippy became the most controversial feature, even to this day, in productivity software. Even the reviews were controversial, with key mainstream reviewers citing both innovation and acknowledging the problem needed addressing. The late Steve Wildstrom, the widely read and deeply respected columnist at Business Week, wrote, I was deeply skeptical about these omnipresent artificial intelligence devices, but to my surprise, I found the animated assistant useful and a feature that sets the new office apart from competing software suites. Quite a few reviews were initially skeptical, and then using the product turned them around. For example, PC Week said, Office Assistant exceeds my expectations. It's not only visually effective, it's also more than superficial in the help that it offers to even a veteran nerd. These comments gave us hope, gave me hope. In Online on the internet, in the Usenet forums, someone wrote a very interesting column in, in our private MVP newsgroups. A final word about the Office Assistant. I find the cutesy animated characters annoying beyond belief, but something interesting is happening with the users. I would not rate the computer knowledge level of most users here as super high, but I regularly see them now clicking on the little dude and typing in questions to figure out how to do something new. It is amazing. Now, timid, non-inquisitive users feel comfortable asking the computer for help. I think it takes away the embarrassment of asking a power user for help on a seemingly simple task. The assistants actually help users learn more about the programs. I have noticed a significant drop in questions regarding Office 97. Users are now figuring out how to do work by actually looking at the help files. The assistant just seems to make users want to look at the help files. Amazing is the word to use here. I had that hanging on my window for quite some time. Still, there was a love-hate relationship with our assistant friend. Clippy immediately became the stuff of legend when it came to the reception among core technical customers and IT and tech enthusiasts. The kind of users that know all the keyboard shortcuts and don't want anything to get in the way of their work. I learned something in how this type of customer chooses to express distaste for a feature. Rather than say directly, I do not like it or I will not use it, these customers generally stepped up and claimed to speak broadly for, quote, typical end users, often talking about their mothers or grandmothers, always female, to represent someone who's not fully versed in the product. In the case of Clippy, we would often hear that this is the not, not the right feature to help those users like my mother or grandmother needing help. This projecting of product concerns rather than owning them directly would be a valuable lesson and something I would carry with me when bringing new features to market that must make it through these gatekeepers. The negative reviews of Clippy were fairly brutal. I think everyone used the cuteness of Clippy as an invitation to spice up the language used to insult the feature. Steve Manis in the New York Times wrote, Help is presented solely in the form of a dialogue balloons attached to one of eight cartoon characters, most of which make irrelevant, distracting movements and sounds until you turn them off. But these toon zombies are as insistent on popping up as Wile E. Coyote. That really hurt. The most unfortunate, though, was how the feature could be construed as a symbol of Microsoft losing touch with customers, especially in this era of heightened scrutiny on the legal front. 
We were wrong, but not because we'd lost touch. We were wrong because we went overboard and in the wrong direction, trying to make computers easy to use for a much larger audience that was new and hadn't used computers before. Still, we had pushed through a final design change to enable the assistant to be turned off. The change was easy technically, but difficult emotionally. Our goal for Clippy to be an ever-present but unobtrusive assistant, agent was the term at the time, today it might be bot, thus turning Clippy off was an admission of failure. Making this possible was quite hard on the team, given how far we'd come from Bob through TFC and beyond. That is all the techie crowd needed, and with that, most of the business deployments of Office 97 had no ever-present assistant. These reviews all mattered. Reviews of products might seem old school in a world of instant hot takes and social networking, and especially with products where bugs or errors can be fixed on the fly and downloaded over the internet. In an era when software could not be so easily changed, publications assigned several people over the course of weeks or more to dig deep into a product, and our own marketing touted excerpts. These reviews really carried weight. We had a reviews team in marketing, three or more full-time people, plus a reviews team at our PR agency working broadly with all the outlets. And this was repeated in most major subsidiaries, especially Japan, Korea, Germany, and UK. At the peak over the next product cycle, there were easily 100 reviews being executed in the US. The marketing team was on a plane for two months meeting in person with all of these. I would visit dozens myself. There was a constant line of communications fielding questions, dealing with bugs and compatibility, and offering support for demos and more. There was a growing parallel effort working with the rising importance of the IT industry analysts, such as Gartner Group, which would soon eclipse the traditional tech reviews and importance to our business. It was not without controversy that we focused so much on reviewers. This was an era where they could be characterized as a form of gatekeeper. It was no doubt limiting as any one reviewer represented a narrow perspective compared to all customers. There were no real alternatives. In many ways, the internet would come to save us, enable a product as broad as Office to reach many more customers directly with more tailored messages, content, and calls to action. The changes in how we reached customers coincided with the maturing PC and PC industry. Two reviews really stood out as defining. Not defining in the product and market as the product went on to great success, but defining for me personally as a product person and also a leader. Steve Manis, who had obliterated Clippy, was by most descriptions a curmudgeon, and it would be difficult for me to say something he did like. We once debated whether a specific Sony laptop, the very famous Sony 505, was good compared to an Apple PowerBook in a session that went on for most of a press event at CES. His complete review of Office, however, had a headline keying off his description of the product, an upgraded Leviathan set sail. The online version includes this review. This was a brutal shot. It characterized the product as, in a sense, just another release, while also describing it as, well, a Leviathan. The text of the review is painful for me to read even today. I will say for the record that one part of his review I often talked about was that he called out the addition of word and character count in the status bar of word. While it surprises many professional writers, most people using word never used word count before, and most writing is not tracked by that metric. We did, however, add it to the status bar by default for the press who lived in word. We have no shame about that. They were an important constituency. True to form, I think most reviews mentioned the feature. While I hung that review on my office door, as I did many others, 
I also went to the office supply store and purchased a portfolio case of plastic folder with a dozen or so clear sheet protectors in it. The first thing I put in, in the first page was this Leviathan review. After that, I put a few pages that I would carry around all the time and update as needed. The list of teams, senior managers, total headcount, ship schedules, milestones, data sheets on competitors, top support calls, and so on. It was this review and the one below that I would talk about and hold up at team meetings when describing our challenges as a business, especially as we plan future products. Much more problematic, though, was Outlook's reception, as it was not a single feature to turn off after making fun of it, but rather a marquee addition to the suite, a new puzzle piece. The Office logo was a puzzle with each app taking on a different color of a puzzle piece. The absence of support for internet standards, as well as the overall complexity of a version one product, led to a series of fairly brutal reviews. Perhaps the one that stung the most came from the Wall Street Journal with the title, Microsoft introduces personal organizer that's unorganized and zingers such as picking up on the dim Outlook pun that was aimed at Outlook internally. Reading from the Wall Street Journal Review. The combination is so tempting that Microsoft incorporated Outlook in its showcase $190 Office 97 suite of software and rejected the PIM, that's Personal Information Manager, label for it, calling Outlook a Desktop Information Manager, or DIM. Sadly, that unfortunate acronym is apt. Office 97 doesn't live up to its potential. It's a great idea, poorly executed. What was an internal joke between now rival Exchange team and Outlook teams was in the review. The review concluded, Microsoft has a history of doing a poor job on the first version of new products, and Outlook fits that pattern. The reporter, Walt Mossberg, had a broadly read and widely discussed column, Personal Technology, in the Wall Street Journal, aimed at taking on the techies of the world and makers of overly complex products. He was the clear leader in the point of view that, in his words, personal computers are just too hard to use and it isn't your fault. He would challenge us consistently, repeatedly, and objectively. He played no favorites and was perfectly straight in dealing with us and any vendor. There was no way to exert undue influence over him, no special treatment, nothing. We showed him the product, answered his questions, tried to fix any issues, and waited for the review. Then he returned the product and any loaner laptop to us promptly. Walt's contribution to encouraging or pushing office to do a better job is something I have shared with him many times. I have enormous respect for him and what he accomplished in his column, and later the conference he co-created, and then a media and technology publication site. His keen reviews profoundly influenced buyers and makers alike. The complexity of Outlook and Walt's experience ironically deepened our ties. Walt began sending me questions and comments from his readers, and I would often answer the myriad of how-to or why questions he received. I never resented or tired of reading these, and later felt nostalgic about them. Walt was right about Outlook and we had a lot of work to do. I can't exactly compare what our team went through to a battle or a traumatic experience, but we did have a shared experience that changed the team dynamic. It also came at a time as the industry was changing dramatically right before our eyes. Teams are built by going through a journey together. When I reflect on Office 97, I'm convinced that the journey to build the product is what created the team and culture that have been so enduring even today. Office 97 was the last release to be sold primarily to individuals at retail. It was the last release to be marketed significantly as app features. And it was the last release to be built as independent applications with shared code versus a shared strategy. 
PCs were the new on-ramp to the information superhighway. The internet had become a global phenomenon driving PCs into every home, as Bill and Paul envisioned more than 15 years earlier. No longer did demand need to be created for PCs. It needed to be met. For Office, all those PCs getting on the internet were being used for schoolwork, homework, and work at home using Office. PCs were also standard on every desktop in the business world, as Bill and Paul had hoped. The race was on to equip workers with all kinds of PCs, to get email, to provide them with tools needed for creation and dissemination of knowledge. Office was a standard part of this. The online version includes an article and review called Office Targets the Web, discussing this use of the PC in the business environment. We needed to scale our product development approach to meet these needs and these new customers. In terms of PCs, dollars, documents, and customers, millions would turn to hundreds of millions, and hundreds of millions to billions. The online version includes a chart of worldwide PC sales. We were at the end of the beginning of the PC revolution, the first part of the journey dominated by hobbyists, tech enthusiasts, and early adopters. The PC was now front and center in a revolution taking place in business, and office was destined to be a foundational element of the computerization of work. Over the next 12 months, PCs would sell more than 100 million units, and more than half of those were bought directly by businesses. The PC was no longer a hobby or a luxury, but an essential element of business. For me personally, Office 97 marked both an end and a new beginning.